This morning we read from Isaiah 54, verses 1 to 8. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Thanks, David. Good morning. A little over 38 years ago, January 1980, Jeannie and I sat on a beach in Carmel, California, on a beautiful sunny day, when I asked her to marry me. Two hours later, when she finally decided to say yes, (laughs) I'll let her tell you that story. That's when the true adventure began. She had no idea what she was getting into. (laughs) You know, in a sense, neither one of us did. It's been quite a journey since then. Ten years into our marriage, we went through extensive marriage counseling to work through some patterns that we developed that were unhealthy, but that set us on a course to get us on the right track. And since then, we've been learning more and more to live together in a loving, caring relationship. It's a great blessing to us today, but it's still growing, (laughs) still growing. When you and I said yes to Jesus, who called us, who died for us, who offered us life and said, please come be my beloved. And when we, if you know Jesus, you said yes to him, everything changed. You had no idea what you were getting into, did you? (laughs) Really? But everything changed. God loves each and every person he made, and he calls every one of us into relationship with him. And when we respond with yes, he begins to develop this good and loving and caring relationship with us. He knows that sins have separated us. Our rebellious hearts have pulled us away from him and separated us, broken our fellowship with him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, as we saw last week. So what did he do? He sent Jesus as Messiah to die for us, to open that door so that he could call us back to himself and we would have the opportunity to say 
yes to him. A beautiful passage we looked at last week, Isaiah 52 and 53. We saw how he bore our sins, how he carried our griefs and our sorrows so that the door could be open into that relationship. But in Isaiah 54, in our passage today, then he begins to lay out the implications of that. Okay, if we have said yes to him and he's broken down that barrier between us so that we can have relationship and he can love us like he wants to love us, then what are the implications of that? What does it look like for us to live as his beloved? But one of the interesting parts of that is that God didn't choose to just save us and take us immediately to heaven, right? I mean, everything would be great there. We wouldn't have to deal with the mess of this world. But we do have to live in this world. He, in his mysterious wisdom, chose to leave us here. And since we're here, it's a challenge for us to learn to live as his beloved here on earth. So what does that look like? What does it mean to live as his beloved in a messed up world? What is that What are the choices we make? What what should we be doing? So Isaiah 54 will help us to understand how to live as his beloved while we're still in this world. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have broken down that wall of sin. That you are making our hearts new. That you have forgiven us. And when we come to you, when we say yes to you, you become our beloved. But Lord, we don't always experience that and feel that. Help us today to learn what it means to truly live our lives as your beloved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, what he says in the first four verses is that we are to enjoy our new status as his beloved. You see, when you said yes to Jesus, everything changed, but we need to learn to live within that reality So in these first four verses of chapter 54, he gives us three commands which encourage us to make the choice to enter into life as his beloved, to begin to enjoy our new status as his beloved. When you enter into a new marriage, if you keep trying to live life the old way, if you keep living as a single person, then life doesn't work very well, does it? And I've counseled plenty of couples where that's happened, where one or both decide, well, I'm still going to live the same way and hang out with my old friends, and, you know, you may not like it, but, hey, uh, I don't want to give all this up. But when you get married, to make it work, you have to change from me to we. It's now we. It's now us, and we've got to learn to blend our lives together. It's the same with Jesus. We need to learn how to live as his beloved. We need to learn how to blend our lives with him because our marriage, so to speak, with him changes everything. He is now our Lord. He is now our husband, as we'll see in this passage. So what's the first command? If we are going to really enter into this, it's simply rejoice. Verse 1 of 54, shout for joy, O barren one. You who have borne no child, break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud. You who have not travailed, for the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman. God's going to change things. He has changed things. So he says the first thing we should do is rejoice. God is in your life. 
You are loved by him. The walls have been taken down between you and the God of the universe. And he promises to bless you and to be with you. So one of the most common commands in the scriptures is this very one. Rejoice in the Lord. Live a life of joy, rejoicing. If we really understand that God loves us that much. Then our hearts will be lifted to praise him. I can rejoice no matter what is going on in my life. Though my life was a mess, I was separated from God. He's called me into relationship and I'm now his. He has saved me. It's really good for me and most of us men that we have reminder days to celebrate our relationship with our wives. Valentine's Day. I hear it's coming up, guys. Anniversaries. Birthdays. We need to be reminded to celebrate the relationship. Well, God knows we're so forgetful about our relationship with him and we forget to rejoice in it that he calls us over and over again to rejoice. And he gives us the Lord's table to celebrate regularly. We at this church celebrate it once a month, but many churches celebrate it every week. And we need that kind of reminding to celebrate what he's done for us. He has redeemed us. He saved us. He died for us. He's given us life as a gift. And we should rejoice in that reality. So if we're his beloved, we we should rejoice. That should be a big part of our lives. We need to choose. It's a command to rejoice in the new relationship we have. Secondly, he says something very interesting. The second command in verse two is that we should enlarge our tent, enlarge our tent. Verse two and three, enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. What does it mean to enlarge your tent? Well, notice what he says. He says to to spread out the tent pegs. Make your tent bigger. Make room for more children, for more family, for more people to come on in to your life, to your home, to your tent. I think the reason this is so important is because, remember, he's writing to Israel who's in Babylon. They're in exile. They're in this foreign land where everything around them is contrary to their faith in a living God. And so the tendency of us, of people who are in that situation, is to just hunker down, to tighten up, to kind of peek out every once in a while, but just try to stay safe, just try to survive. But God says, if you know me as your beloved, if you know how much I love you and I'm taking care of you and I am your husband, then you can make the choice to enlarge your tent. To realize I'm being taken by God, so he's given me life and I want to expand and share that life with with as many people as I can. There was a point in my ministry, I'd been in a couple different churches and I'd experienced some real pain in those relationships and in those churches. And I found myself being afraid of being hurt again. I really considered not going back into ministry at all, but I felt, well, God's calling me, but 
I found myself getting narrower and narrower because I didn't want to get hurt. I imagine that's the way Israel felt being in Babylon. I know that's the way many of you feel in your lives because of the trauma and difficulty you faced. But I, Isaiah's challenge to Israel and to us is No, right where you are in the midst of your life, because God loves you so much, because you're his beloved, you can enlarge your tent. You can open your heart. You can welcome people in. You can live a generous, hospitable life. Choose to do that, he says. It's a command. Enlarge your tent. Trust that God wants to use you to bless the nations, it says. The nations will come. If you open your tent, if you enlarge it and make it big enough for more people to enter your heart, make room for the nations, make room for your neighbors, make room for your family, make room for your world, he says. If you're living as God's beloved, you enlarge your tent, you will be generous, you will find ways to do that. So God allowed me just a few years later as we were here and We'd kind of tried to expand our tent, and uh, we had nine people living with us in the home we'd built, including my two parents who were dying of various things, and we were taking care of them. So we decided to go in with them and, and buy a bigger house. So we bought a house that's fairly large, but within three years, both my parents had died. And Jeannie and I thought, why, Lord, did you give us this big house? when it's not needed anymore for my parents. But we dedicated it to the Lord, and we said, Lord, okay, whatever you want for this house, it's it's yours. What was exciting to see is how God answered that prayer. Over the last 20 years being in our house, we have had many, many people come and live with us over the years, from elderly people going through surgeries to missionary kids who needed an experience here to uh, other people who are going through trauma and difficulty, needed a safe place to live for a while. Over the years, more than half the time, people have been living with us. Jeannie and I haven't spent a lot of time with just us, and it's been a joy. We've seen our kids go off and come back and go off and come back. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. And that's been a joy as well. You see, if you enlarge your tent, you just say, Lord, okay, whatever. Use me, use what I have for your kingdom. It's just exciting. It's an adventure to live. So Isaiah commands Israel and he commands us, enlarge your tent. Don't hunker down and play it safe. Don't hide away and just try to be comfortable waiting for Jesus to come back. But enlarge your tent and make room in your heart, in your life for the nations. So if you're His beloved, you will enlarge your tent. You'll rejoice. You'll enlarge your tent. And third, you won't live in fear. That's the third command. Don't fear. Verse 4, fear not, for you will not be put to shame and do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. He's using this analogy of being a widow in Israel, which once you lost your husband, there was tremendous rejection and shame in the culture. But he says you do not need to fear if God loves you and if he is your beloved and you are his beloved, 
then you have a new relationship that brings life and joy to you. And so you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. And notice what he says to not be afraid of specifically. Shame, humiliation, rejection. I find that so many of us as believers in our world, unbelievers as well, but certainly as believers, we're we're driven by shame and humiliation. In the book, The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson, he says that shame is the greatest tool of Satan to do harm to Christians. Shame is the greatest tool of Satan to do harm to Christians. So often we give into that and we're afraid of being shamed and rejected and humiliated. But he says, if you are the beloved of God himself, the creator of the universe, we do not have to live in fear of being rejected by people and shamed by people and humiliated by people. If the creator of the universe is on your side, what do you have to fear? So he commands us, make a choice to rest in his love and do not fear. But rest in his goodness. The God of the universe loves you. Perfect love casts out fear. First John 4.18 says, So enjoy your new status as the beloved of God. Rejoice, enlarge your tent, <laughs> and say no to fear. Secondly, in verse 5 through 10, not only are we to enjoy our new status as his beloved, but we are to bask in that love. We are to really, truly bask in the fact that the God of the universe loves us. Verses 5 through 10. Let me just read verse 5. All the different terms, notice, that are used to describe God and his relationship with us. For your maker is your husband, whose name is the Lord of hosts. He is the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, who is called the God of all the earth. He says you can bask in his love because the God of the universe who's opened the door, whom you've said yes to, is your maker. Why does he use that term? Because he's the one who created you in the first place, the way he wanted you to be. He knew the choices you would make, and he made you in the image of God. You reflect the image of God in a way that no one else in the world can. But not only is he your maker, but though you sinned and walked away, he is your remaker. <laughs> he created you and he is your recreator. And he is recreating you in his likeness more and more. And therefore, because he's forming us as the people of God, making us, we can bask in his great love as our maker. The second term he uses Isaiah does to describe God is that he is our husband. He has covenanted with us, committed himself forever as our husband. It's a beautiful analogy he uses here. Now, let me say a word to the men here. I, I understand for some of you, you think, God's my husband? That feels strange. I understand as an analogy, it can feel a little weird, but it's in the scriptures, and God wants us to think of him in certain aspects as our husband. He has covenanted himself with us. He has loved us. So let me encourage you to hang in there and go with the analogy, men, because I think there's much you can learn from it. In verse 10, he goes on to talk about how this, as a husband, 
He has loyal love for us. Chesed, that Hebrew word that talks about a kind of love that is a covenant love that has committed himself to us and nothing can break that covenant. It's a beautiful picture of committed, permanent, secure love. That's the kind of love he has for us as a husband. Now, we kind of lose that sense in today's culture because marriage is not very permanent in our culture, is it? Today, there's marriages where people go into it with a prenuptial agreement. You know, let's commit to one another for 10 years. As long as you fulfill your part, then, you know, I'll stick with you. But many of us go in with the same mentality, always keeping in our minds a way out. But let me tell you that God does not do that with us. (laughs) He's covenanted with us and he will never, never, never let us go. That's what kind of husband he is. The next couple of terms that he uses to describe who God is to us so that we can bask in his love is that he is Lord of hosts and the Holy One of Israel. If he's Lord of hosts, that literally is is Lord of the angel armies. He's Lord of heaven. He has all power in the entire universe and beyond the created universe and heaven itself. He controls all. But he's also the Holy One of Israel, the personal one who engages with us, who in his purity, his holiness, yet he is the God of Israel and chooses relationship with Israel and ultimately with us as well. That means that he is all powerful. He is the kind of God, the maker, the husband we can trust in because he has all power so we can rest in the relationship. We can lean on him and know that he will be enough. No human relationship is like that. Only he is truly enough for us. And then the fourth word he uses to describe who our maker is, is redeemer in this verse. He's the one who bought you and me out of sin. He's a God who went to every length he had to, to buy us back, to take our place by sending Jesus He paid the complete price. It brings to mind the passage in maybe Ruth, where Boaz buys essentially Ruth as his her kinsman redeemer or Hosea, where Hosea goes and God says, go buy back a woman of prostitution. And he reaches out and buys Gomer and she runs away and he buys her back. He's never going to let her go. God is our redeemer who has paid the price to buy us out of sin. He redeemed us out of our desperate state and he will never, ever let us go. A little later in the passage, verse 7, 8, 10, he uses a couple words several times that God is a God of compassion and God is a God of loving kindness, chesed, that covenant love. That means that he cares for you in a heartfelt, deep way. God isn't just this distant God who looks at you and says, well, I died for you and, you know, so let's be in a relationship. No, he is a God of compassion towards you and incredible loving kindness. That means he loves you, but also, get this, he likes you. (laughs) Do you realize that? The God of the universe looks at you and he says, I like you. You, I am fond of you and I love spending time with you. 
That's hard for us to grasp sometimes, isn't it? Because we don't feel very likable. But God likes us. <laughs> so think about all this. A, a maker, a husband, a Lord of hosts who's enough to lean on. Our Redeemer, he's a God who likes us, who's a God of compassion, who's a God of loving kindness, a God of covenant love towards us. Can you imagine a spouse like that? No spouse is perfectly like that, are they? But God is. But if you had a spouse like that, you would want to spend every waking moment with them. And God says, I want to spend every waking moment with you. I want to be that close, that intimate. So what Isaiah is telling us is Israel and the people of God throughout history, if you have that kind of a God who loves you so much and is that kind of God towards you, we should bask in his love. We should rest in his love. We should enjoy his love and long to spend every waking moment with him. So Isaiah says we should enjoy our new status as his beloved. We should bask in that love. And then third, as his spouse, the bride of Christ, we should trust in his promises. Verse 11 through 17. You see, any good marriage... Any good relationship has to be built on trust, doesn't it? We have to be able to trust that the other person means what they say, that that they will be there for you, that they will be faithful to you, that they're not lying and deceiving you, but you, you can trust them. If trust is broken, it's really hard to be to rebuild. It can take years to feel safe to really trust that person's word again. Trust allows a relationship to flourish and to grow. Trust is a choice to some degree, but it can grow over time. But if you're going to be in a good marriage, you have to trust that those vows that that spouse said to you on your wedding day, that they meant them and they are going to live them out every day. Well, God longs for us to trust in his promises. He has made his vows and he is trustworthy, though any human might let us down. He is trustworthy and he longs for us to trust in his promises so that we can rest in the relationship. He also knows that trust doesn't come easy for us. Like Israel in exile in Babylon. We live in a world of suffering and difficulty and pain. And it's easy to fall into some thinking, and all of us struggle with this at times, I think, is that, wait a minute, if, if God loves me that much, then why is life so hard? Why do I suffer pain and difficulty and broken relationships and all those things? He knows that that's a struggle for us. But what it means is we have a choice. We have a choice to either be angry about it Shake our fists at God. Why are you doing this to me? Or we have a choice to trust in what God says. So what does he want us to trust in? Well, Isaiah gives us three different truths he wants us to trust in. That in the midst of the difficulty and the suffering, he is at work. And the first way he is at work is that he is making something beautiful out of your life. (laughs) He's making your life beautiful. Listen to Verse 11, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. God knows we're struggling, right? Behold, 
I will set your stones in antimony, and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal and your entire wall of precious stones. He switches the analogy here from a marriage relationship to one of a city that is incredibly beautiful. The whole city is made of gold and jewels, sapphires. It's incredibly beautiful. It glows and can be seen in its beauty for miles and miles around. And what Isaiah is saying is, this is what God is doing in your life, Israel. This is what God is doing in your life, O people of God of 2018. In the midst of the mess, he is making something beautiful out of your life. He is making you a city that can shine in the darkness. Now, I understand it's not obvious that when we think about the body of Christ, that it's this beautiful, shining city that reveals the beauty of God. Because when we live in community, it's messy, isn't it? We see other people who often have petty attitudes and selfishness. And people who are just in process and maybe not handling it well all the time. And we rub shoulders with one another and we think this is, this is something beautiful. That's why it takes faith, right? We trust that God's working in my life and in your life, making something beautiful out of this messy world. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to believe that he's at work. And that is his promise to us. Paul talks about this when he says these momentary light afflictions are producing in us an eternal weight of glory. We take that by faith, don't we? Oh, once in a while, we just get glimpses in ourselves or in other people where there's this shining jewel just kind of coming through and you go, whoa, God's at work here. But a lot of times things seem kind of dingy and they need some polishing. <laughs> but he gives us his promises like Romans eight twenty eight. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his promise. And what is the good? He goes on to tell us it's Christ's likeness. It's the beautiful, glorified life of being like Jesus. So we, by faith, trust that. And we are asked by Isaiah to trust that God is making our lives beautiful. Secondly, he asks us to trust that he's building you a heritage a heritage of impact in the world. Verse 13, all your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. What's he saying? He's saying, I will work if you will live as my beloved. I will work to make your life one that has impact. He mentioned sons, but I, I think it's not just physical sons and daughters he's talking about here, but he's talking about People that we have impact on in our worlds. That as we learn to enlarge our tent, God promises that he will use us to bless people and change their lives and make an impact on future generations. You may not see how that's happening. But he says, as you do so, as you enlarge your tent, as you use your life for hospitality and blessing other people, God promises he will give you a heritage of impact. And then finally, verse 14 through 17, we can trust in his promise that if we will live as his beloved, he will keep us secure in his love. 
secure in his love and in his protection. Verse 14, in righteousness you will be established, you will be far from oppression, for you will not fear and from terror, for it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will be not from me. Whoever assails you will will fall because of you. Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work, and I've created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that's formed against you will prosper. Every tongue that accuses you in judgment will be you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares Yahweh. We need to know if we're going to trust him that when we get mistreated in life and we get attacked and Satan's out to get us, that God will work in that even in the difficulty for our good. And that's what he promises. He promises that he will ultimately protect us and his love cannot fail. He will be a jealous husband who will protect us in the midst of life. He does say that some will stir up strife against us. They'll bring weapons against us. They'll try to condemn us with words. But he says, I ultimately will protect you in the midst of that. I will be your shield and your fortress. Notice what he says. He says, look, those weapons that are coming against you, I made the guy who made the weapons. (laughs) And I control the nations. So you don't have to live in fear. So trust that I will protect you in the midst of life. Take it by faith. Through Isaiah, God says, I redeemed you. I took on your sin because I knew it separated us. And I wanted to be able to call you my beloved. So now live in the reality of Being my beloved, enjoy your new status as my beloved. Rejoice, enlarge your tent, (laughs) live in that fullness that I've offered you. Bask in my love, delight in who I am to you as your maker, as your husband, as the holy one of Israel, as the one who has compassion and loving kindness towards you and trust in my awesome promises. And if we do that, if we step out to trust him and live as his beloved, our life will become more and more beautiful in the light of his wondrous, glorious love towards us. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, that we are your beloved. You've given us life as a gift. May we learn to live in that reality, to bask in your love, to enjoy what you've given us, And out of that, to impact the world around us as we enlarge our tent and embrace others so that they can know who you are and become the beloved of God as well. In Jesus' name, amen.